Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, I'm talking to presenter, TV executive, food entrepreneur, writer and neuroscientist, Dr. Kathy Rogers. Everyone can get better at creativity just as they can with maths. I totally believe that's possible. And I think that the first step of that is imbuing that sense of possibility in children. Kathy's research looks at children's creativity and what can really bring it to life, as well as what could prevent it from flourishing. You'll hear her share how we as educators, parents and carers can help our children's creativity develop at home and in school. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Dr. Kathy Rogers. Kathy, it's lovely to have you here. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be here. So we're talking today about creativity and curriculum. Let's start with the definition of creativity and why the special interest from your perspective. Well, in terms of my special interest, I think it's been something that throughout all the different jobs and studies that I've done has kind of been the thread that has connected them all. And really, I think that for me, it's all about finding connections between surprising things. Mm. In terms of psychology and neuroscience, which is the discipline that I've been studying it through, then how we define it is in terms of originality. So, something creative has to have some degree of originality, but it also has to have some kind of value. So just coming up with something that is completely original isn't enough. It's got to be in some way adapted to some kind of purpose. Um, But that's quite a low bar, you know, (laughs) by that definition, inventing something interesting for dinner is creative. Okay. So tell us about your own background. You have had a really eclectic career, culminating possibly, or perhaps not culminating because you probably still have many, many things to go on and do, but your recent PhD, does this reflect your own creative desires, do you think? I definitely got interested in studying creativity rather than practicing creativity because of my experience working with creative teams in the TV industry and being interested in what is it that means that some people seem to be able to sort of just froth out with ideas and others never feel they can, you know, whether that's that they have them and they don't say them or they just don't come. Um, And so that was what got me interested in thinking about, well, I'm interested in how this works in the brain? Like, what do we know about what the processes are that actually lead to someone coming up with something original? And I got interested in looking at it in children, because I think there's a lot that we sort of assume about children and creativity, and they seem very free. And, you know, especially young children, maybe before they even go to school, just seem to have this incredible ability to generate novelty all of the time. Tell us about the research that you've done into creativity. Talk us through your findings. Yeah, so my research was looking at primary school age children. 
the particular bit that I was interested in was the relationship between creativity and what are called executive functions, which are basically the bits of our brain that help us control things. So it's about managing distractions and putting your attention in the right place and staying focused on a task long enough to see it through. And there's a lot of evidence that having good executive functions is good. You know, you pass exams more, you get better jobs, you earn more money, you're healthier. But I had a hunch based on my own experience as a practitioner of creativity that maybe too much executive function might have a sort of detrimental effect on creativity because there's only so much focus and managing out distractions that you can do before you lose sight of some of the possibilities that might be more surprising and a bit less predictable and a bit less kind of within a prescriptive plan. So my research was looking at creativity on the one hand and executive functions on the other. And um, I looked at it with quantitative tests because there are lab tests for creativity. I mean, they're not altogether satisfactory, as you might imagine, because we all know from, you know, from our own creative efforts, if someone says, right, sit down and now have a really good idea in the next three minutes, that's quite hard. (laughs) Um, And that's essentially what we're asking people to do when we put them in a lab situation. So there's all sorts of compromises. Nonetheless, I think that they tell us something, you know, so the, the tests are meant to be fun and they are fun, like most children enjoy doing them. They're very simple things, like you might give a child a piece of paper with lots of blank circles on and what they have to do is come up with as many ideas as they can for what to turn those circles into. Um, so most children will do a face and the sun and the moon and then, you know, the rate of new ideas will go down. I use those kind of quantitative tools. But I also, and in a way, the bit of my research which really fascinated me was qualitative. So I, you know, gave children a lot of freedom about doing a creative task. So doing a picture that they wanted to do or making up a story or something. And then I interviewed them about all of the processes that went into that. So videoed them and then we kind of played back the video second by second. And they talked about what was going on in their head at different times. And they were extraordinarily able to. I was actually amazed. Like these were children, the youngest were sort of six and the oldest were 11. But they had this incredible insight into how their brains seemed to be working at different stages of the creative process. Because creativity is a process, right? It's not just one thing. Um, and the extent to which we need different types of thinking at different times varies over the course of that process. So when you're first coming up with ideas, you might need to do some preparation work to find out more about it, to kind of like, you know, have more knowledge. And then you might have a phase which is sometimes called a kind of incubation phase where you might go for a walk or you go and play in the park or you do something completely unrelated, but your new knowledge is still sort of working away in the background, not necessarily consciously. And then you might have a moment which is like the aha moment where an idea suddenly comes and sometimes you're not even sure where it's come from. It just seems to have appeared. And that part of the process is much less controlled. Like that seems sometimes almost 
if you try and control it, you're going to lose it. Um, but then once you've got the idea, that's just an idea and you've got to turn it into something, whether that is a story or a picture or a play or whatever it is. Um, and again, that bit might require more control. That might be more where the sort of focus bit comes in. And what I found children were very able to do was I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them were able to sort of talk to those different processes and have an awareness of this is the bit where I need to concentrate really hard. And this is the bit where I actually kind of need to switch off. I need to sit back and take a look at it and think about something else, look out the window. And I found that really illuminating. Um, the fact that they were, you know, what they were talking about were lots of stages of a process that we understand well in adults, but also the very fact that they could articulate it. Um, even though I think generally we never ask children those kind of questions. I don't think we say to them, how, how did you go about that task? What was going on in your head? What was the link which led from A to B to C? Um, and mostly they seem to really enjoy talking about that. I was just going to say, do you, do, so do you think that this is a skill that is knocked out of us? I mean, can you balance that creativity with classroom learning? Can you maintain it? I mean, that is the sort of $6 billion question, isn't it? Um, my perspective, what schools are very good at doing is teaching the executive function side of things. Because even to have a classroom of 30 children pointing the right way and being quiet enough <laughs> to hear what the teacher might be saying, you've got to have quite a lot of executive functions, you know, working well. So I think we've got the control, the focus bit taken care of pretty well. But if we're saying, as I am, um, and I think you know, the children were saying is, yes, that's part of it. But there's also a bit where you kind of need to be a bit freer. You need to be a bit wilder, a bit more freewheeling, a bit more don't know where this is going to go. And I think that there's two problems with that in schools. I think one is there's still a bit of a belief that that's not teachable, that that's just something that magically happens and that actually you've got it or you haven't got it. Um, the second thing is the output of schools are standardized assessments. You know, at all the different levels of the education system, they're standardized assessments and how they're set up as they currently are doesn't mean that creativity is measured. And if it's not measured, and schools are being judged by their output, then in a way, it's the adaptive response for schools to not teach it. What are they gaining from it? So I think that there's those two problems, because my sense is that a lot of teachers would love to have more creative freedom in the classroom. They'd love the chance to put more creativity in there. But there's it just doesn't quite make sense with the system that we have. Yeah, agreed. So let's talk about this greater creative freedom, less routine, fewer specifications. I mean, we have all just lived through that, through being locked down at home. Um, that disruption can make us reflect and lead to new ways of doing things, can't it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, I don't think anything to do with COVID is going to have a simple answer. Partly because, <laughs> oh, you know, every, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know, so on the one hand, I think there were so many stories of people taking up mosaicing, learning to 
do upholstery, crochet, you know, whatever it was, lots of people engaging in more creativity. Um, but I think there is something about disruption that is, it's a shock to the system, isn't it? And I think that shocks to the system are definitely helpful for creativity. But on the other hand, shocks to the system can also bring about a lot of anxiety and worry and a kind of wanting to cling to things that are known that you can control in a world that suddenly seems out of control. And I think that mindset isn't necessarily conducive to creativity, even though I think other things like the, you know, some elements of the disruption and having more time, I think probably did help it. Yes. I was going to ask, why should we be safeguarding creativity and spontaneity in our lives when we, when actually what we might want at the moment is just some predictability and patterns over the 18 months we've had, the stopping, starting, the trying to plan, the cancelling plans. But I guess it's acknowledging that, that creativity and spontaneity is not necessarily something that goes hand in hand. It's not that, you know, because we're out of our routine, we're suddenly going to become more spontaneous or creative. Yeah. And it's always, you know, there is a bit of a leap into the unknown, isn't there? And I think that that first step is sometimes very hard to take when it feels like there's, there's chaos all around. But also, I mean, I'd say even at the level of our brain, we're quite contradictory on this because one thing the brain loves is an easy life you know the brain <laughs> loves being able to predict exactly what's going to come up and run on autopilot and not have any surprises but the contradictory part is the brain also loves a wrong prediction and it's really primed to learn how can i pay attention to this situation and learn from it you know, I always think about, you know, choosing what film to watch. Like we know that actually we'll get more out of watching that avant-garde French film, but it takes more effort. And actually we're going to pull the born identity off the shelf again because it's easy and we know what we're going to get. And that tension, I think, is absolutely part of creativity, but it's also it's wired in like we're all facing that you know, do I stay on the sofa or do I go to the party thing? All the time. It's kind of a constant battle. And the sofa usually wins out <laughs> in my case, I think. It's interesting what you say there about the learning opportunities when things go wrong, because we do talk a lot within education and certainly within the GSC about reframing failure. There's no such thing as a bad mistake if you can learn from it. 100%. Like we do know quite a lot about situations that help creative thinking. And one of them is a tolerance for error. Or, or even like you said, it's not even seeing error as error. You know, it's being more open than that. Because if you're in a situation, if you allow for a situation where there isn't a single right answer, then what does or doesn't constitute an error is already redefined. You know, if you're in a situation where there's multiple possible answers, then what even is error? You know, there's just sort of answers on a continuum, aren't there? And if you go into a situation thinking, Anywhere on that continuum, I might be able to find something to learn from. That's really exciting. You know, that, that, that opens up such possibilities that actually this sort of honing in that um, exams often make us do, or lots of thinking in life, not just exams make us do, is kind of like a bit, oh God, you know, what's there to get excited about? So I think, yeah, tolerance of, of error, tolerance of ambiguity, tolerance of all sorts of things, I think is, is hugely important. You know, I think one of the simplest things we can all do to be more creative is just open ourselves up to a wider variety of people and situations and ideas and experiences. So let's go back to exams. How can an A-level 
let's say, science student or a math student be creative whilst ticking off exam specification content? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think the answer is a lot of it depends on the teacher because there's one set of answers which are if your teacher's on board with that approach. Um, and there's another set which is actually your teacher just really wants you to get the grades and doesn't want any sort of deviation <laughs> from the syllabus. Um, the second situation is obviously harder because if you don't have a lot of your own personal motivation, which I'm sorry to say, I think is often the case with A-levels um, that, you know, we hope that we have students who are absolutely passionate about their subject and incredibly engaged and motivated to go off and do their own independent study. I think that that's probably not the majority. And without motivation, I think it's very hard to propel yourself into creative thinking in your subject. I think if you've got your teacher on side and they understand challenging things where they're allowing people to work on projects in teams where the outcomes aren't completely predetermined, I think that there's a huge amount that can be done in terms of meeting the requirements of syllabus, but adding a whole extra layer which benefits students in so many ways. Because if they're more empowered to learn for themselves, they'll remember stuff more. The requirements of good learning and the requirements of creativity are not in conflict. I think it's more the history of our um, education system and our sort of emphasis on exam output is what gets in the way. I don't think that there is an inherent contradiction. I think it's just an evolved contradiction through the way things have developed. In each episode, we hear from a member of our GDST community who will share their perspective on the matter at hand. And this is Dr. Emma Russell, Director of STEM at South Hampstead High School, talking about what we can do to keep creativity in the classroom. I think sometimes in the science subjects, people say that they're distinct from the creative subjects. But actually, in order to be a successful engineer, in order to work in technology, to come up with creative solutions to problems, that creativity is essential. So some of the things that we do at South Hampstead are try and bring those sort of cross-curricular links and creative opportunities into lessons. For example, year eight recently, they had to design a children's toy. It was using principles of magnetism to teach younger children about the environment and the impact of plastic waste. And it was incredibly creative uh, and they still kind of explored their science and were able to explain that really well through it. There's also uh, the way that we like to sometimes set tasks and it doesn't matter the medium through which the students do the work but only that they um, explore the scientific ideas in it. So, for example, you might uh, say you have to teach all about evolving models of the atom, but you can do it through song, through poem, uh, through a poster, through a cartoon or storyboard. And uh, again, you see this creative expression of ideas. There are also just brilliant projects that we have run and we've also run across the GDST. So I think the STEM 700 writing competition that the GDST does is fantastic, where students write 700 words on a topic of their choice from science, technology, engineering or maths. This year, one of my favourites was a student who 
coded a mathematical model for the evolution of viruses. And yeah, it's just a fantastic piece of work. And perhaps people don't necessarily think that you have to be creative when you are doing computer modeling, but uh, it's absolutely essential. And it's something that we really try and encourage. So, Cathy, uh, you've shared your insights into that conflict between creativity and exam specifications. How does our our current education system in the UK measure up to how they're doing it elsewhere in the world in promoting creativity, more obviously in their curriculum? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, my sense is that there are more cases of great practice in many countries rather than one place that has got all the answers. I think that when we think about creativity, we often think about Finland. That's a country that often comes up and there's obviously a lot of discussion about school starting age and whether actually keeping children in that mode of thinking where they're exploring of their own volition and following their own curiosity for longer before we put them behind desks and make them learn. And certainly in terms of some of the, you know, when they do international measures, I think Finland measures up quite well. But then so does a country like Singapore who approach it in a completely different way. It's much more about skills-based, knowledge-based training, but they do do a lot of sort of problem-based work. So, I mean, there, there are two examples where things are done a bit differently and with some success, but with very different approaches. I think the foundational level of it, wherever you are in the world and whatever approach you're taking, is for teachers to have the belief and to pass that belief on to students that Everyone is creative and everyone can get better at creativity just as they can with maths or with spelling or with the other things that we've kind of, we've decided those are the important things. So important that we're not going to let a child leave school unless they reach this bare minimum of maths um, ability. What if we thought about creativity in that way? What if we said we're not going to let children leave school until they're all able to generate new ideas to a certain level. I totally believe that's possible. And I think that the first step of that is imbuing that sense of possibility in children. You know, so just as you know, I know people do still say, oh, I'm bad at maths. And, you know, you hear adults saying, oh, I'm bad at maths. And you, but you hear so many people say, oh, I'm just not creative. I mean, in fact, it's one of the things that got me interested in studying it is whenever I would do ideas sessions, when I worked as a TV creative, coming up with ideas, I'd always try and haul in people from all the different departments, like, come on, lawyers, come on, accounts, come and play. And there was such resistance, you know, people would say, I don't have ideas. No, I'm scared. It was, and, and I think getting over that sort of taboo or that sense that it's a thing you have or you don't have rather than a thing like everything, which is on a continuum. Some people just seem to be able to do it really naturally. Other people find it harder, but everyone can get better. I think that's just so important. You talked about problem solving before. Do you think that pitching creativity as problem solving would be a way of getting more engagement as a discipline? In a way, I do. I mean, I think that there is, in creativity research, the types of tools that we use to look at creativity fall into two 
sets, really. One is divergent thinking. So that's how many ideas can you come up with from a single starting point? And the other side is kind of called convergent thinking. And a lot of those are problem-solving tasks. I think that a lot of them are too convergent. They're too kind of sim- single right answer. Um, you know, so the type of thing I'm thinking about uh the dunker candle test where you get a box of tacks and a candle and you have to work out how to attach the candle to the wall and it be burning without wax dripping. And it's it's one of those things where you have to think outside of the box and you have to use things in a surprising way. But there's sort of one way of doing it. For me, when I talk about problem solving, it's more open. It's more how can you set a problem, like something like that is a, a a quizzical thing in chemistry, say, and set it as a problem to solve in a more open-ended way. So there might be different paths that your uh, experimenting or your creative ideas could go rather than almost like a slightly frustrating problem solving where it's like a puzzle and you get it or you don't get it. Because those kind of think outside the box things, I think some people just feel, oh, I never get these. And I just feel sort of like a bit annoyed when I don't get them. So, but I think you're right in the sense that problem solving, A, feels like a really good life skill because that's pretty much life, isn't it? Problem solving, (laughs) isn't it just? (laughs) Um, But it also doesn't have the wooliness that I think some people worry about with creativity. I think if you said to teachers, yes, this is a new problem solving set of tools for your biology A-level, that would feel slightly less threatening than here's your new creative tools. (laughs) So I think as a tactic, it could be brilliant. Oh my goodness, you're so spot on. Okay, you will have lots of parents and carers listening to what you're saying today about creativity. Can you give an example of creativity in a home setting? Yeah, so I was thinking about this because I think there's a risk of being super annoying and saying, hey, no, like make two hours in the day and, you know, roll your sleeves up and let's do freestyle painting. Yes, Um, (laughs) that's why I was, that is exactly what I was dreading. Yes, go on. (laughs) Um, So I was thinking, what are things that don't take any extra time that are just games that children generally enjoy and and, and also things that I genuinely do? so there's a game that we play, you know, when we're having breakfast or dinner or wh- whenever we might be sitting in the same place, which is called the tennis elbow foot game. Um, and it's basically just a game where you have to make a connection with the word that the person before has said. So that's why it's called tennis elbow. So you say tennis, I say elbow because tennis elbow is a thing. But then somebody else says foot because that's connected in a different way. And somebody else might do something that rhymes and you just go quickly. And what it's about is just surprising yourself with the connections that you make. It's as simple as that. And then there's a version of another version of it where you try, you say a word like I'm might say the word duck and you have to say a word that has nothing to do with duck but what to me that is doing is practicing finding things that are I almost picture them as far apart in my brain I mean that's not anatomically how it works and a neuroscientist would do me down but if you think of almost ducks over here what can I think of that is as far away as possible because I think that one thing that is not only important for creativity, but really exciting about creativity is when you find links between really surprising things. And I think practicing doing that is kind of a fun thing. So I think those kind of games, I think, are really good. There's a really 
good little game called Story Dice, which are just, they're a set of dice, but instead of having numbers on, they have a picture. So they might have a picture of an ice cream or a pair of sunglasses and you roll a dice. So you roll five or six of these dice and then your job is just to make a story to join them up. So again, it's just about really simple things that just kind of push you to make connections in whatever way you want. But I think all of those things are fun. Dr. Cathy Rogers, thank you so much for sharing your insights into how we can all think more creatively. It's been really lovely to have you here. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series, and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST when I'll be with parenting coach and children's behaviour expert, Livy Gormali. And a lot of those extra behaviours, they're not misbehaving and being bratty. They're overwhelmed in a scenario that they only get once a year. And we haven't had a normal Christmas for the last two Christmases. So like they haven't had a chance to practice this. So be kind to yourselves. Be supportive of your own needs, I think. I'll see you then.